invite you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 24. If you're a guest with us, we've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew, and we've come to uh, Jesus' final discourse in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, often referred to as the Olivet Discourse. We're going to begin reading this morning in verse 15. And I will tell you ahead of time that the passage before us today is a difficult one. It's not necessarily one that's going to make you excited and give you warm fuzzies, but it is an important one. And so I'll encourage you to keep your Bible open before you and follow along as we study it together. And I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject this morning, the abomination of desolation. Matthew chapter 24, and we'll begin reading in verse 15, and this is what the Word of God says. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect." See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. In response to his disciples' question, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age, Jesus continues to outline the judgment that awaits Israel as well as the destruction of the temple. Now, given its overall context, the proper interpretation of Jesus' words in his final discourse here in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 should be with a view both to the generation of the Israelites of Jesus' day, as well as a generation of Israelites that is yet to come. For the destruction of the temple in 70 AD by the Romans, and the horror and the miseries which the Jews endured throughout that siege of their city exceeded anything recorded up to that point in history. 
It was truly a time of tribulation that had not been seen from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never would be. And a full account of this siege is found in the writings of the historian Josephus. But we must not conclude that Jesus' words here are exhausted by the Romans in the event that took place in 70 AD. For the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Zechariah all prophesy of a coming time of incomparable horror in the world that will focus on the nation of Israel. And although Israel as a nation and the Jewish people in general have endured many periods of great suffering throughout history, the amount of suffering during these times that the prophets record will exceed anything known to man. In Matthew chapter 24 verses 4 to 14, Jesus described the birth pains that would precede his second coming. And these verses represent the first three and a half years of tribulation described in the book of Revelation in chapters 6 to 16. And now in verses 15 to 28, Jesus discloses the turning point of the tribulation, an event known as the abomination of desolation. And he also discloses the events surrounding the final three and a half years of tribulation that the book of Revelation marks and describes as the great tribulation. And what I want you to see at the outset of this passage of Scripture is that Jesus' language in this passage is the most somber that he could have employed. He speaks of a time of trouble that is coming the likes of which have never before been seen in human history. It'll be a time of unprecedented death, destruction, suffering, and terror. It will be an abomination of desolation. And would you notice with me, first of all, in verse 15, that this abomination of desolation will be a time of great desecration. Jesus says in verse 15, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. The very first word in this verse, the word so, connects this phrase with the or this verse with the phrase, then the end will come at the end of verse 14, with the the event being introduced here. When the abomination of desolation comes, then the end will come. Now the word abomination denotes an object of disgust and repulsion and abhorrence. In Scripture, it is used primarily to denote things associated with idolatry and gross ungodliness. The Hebrew equivalent of this word was often used of rites and paraphernalia associated with the wicked conduct and practices of pagan religions. And in the book of Revelation, this word is used to represent the immoralities and spiritual uncleanness 
of the false religious system known as Babylon the Great in Revelation chapter 17. But you'll notice in verse 15 that Jesus doesn't just refer to this event as an abomination, as some gross act of ungodliness. He says that it is an abomination of desolation. And that phrase could be translated, the abomination which makes something desolate. Or the abomination which lays to waste something. In other words, this act of abomination is what causes the desolation or the destruction or the waste. And you'll notice in verse 15 that Jesus says this abomination of desolation was referred to by the Old Testament prophet Daniel. And when you study Daniel's prophecy, you find that Daniel referred to the abomination of desolation four times. In Daniel chapter 8 and verse 13, in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27, in Daniel chapter 11 and verse 31, and in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 11. Additionally, Jesus declares in verse 15 that the abomination of desolation will stand in the holy place. And so whatever this event is, whatever this abomination, whatever this gross ungodliness is, it will cause a desolation like never seen before, and it will take place in the holy place. Now Mark in his parallel account of this verse, says that the abomination of desolation in Mark chapter 13 and verse 14 stands where it ought not to be. This abomination stands where it ought not to be. It stands in the holy place. And so what is Jesus referring to? He is referring to the temple. And it is in the temple where this desolate act will take place. Now, I want to remind you before we go any further this morning that biblical prophecy often has both a present and a future fulfillment. So, when Daniel spoke of the abomination of desolation, he was referring to an event that would take place soon in the history of Israel. And simultaneously, he was referring to another event that would take place further into the future. And for the purposes of our understanding of this text this morning, we can divide verse 15 and Daniel's prophecy into three lines of thought. And here they are. Number one. What was the abomination of desolation in Daniel's day? Number two, what was it in the disciples' day? And number three, what will it be in the future? So first, what it was in Daniel's day. Virtually every Bible scholar, no matter what his view on eschatology, identifies the abomination of desolation that Daniel refers to in his prophecy as the sacrilege committed by Antiochus IV, the Syrian king who ruled Palestine from 175 to 165 B.C. His name means Antioch the Great 
But he began referring to himself as Theos Epiphanes, which means manifesting God. And his enemies nicknamed him Epimenes, which means a madman or a lunatic. And when Antiochus died, he was completely insane and out of his mind and completely mad due to the defeats from the Jewish people. History records that Antiochus, unsatisfied with his pillage and slaughter of Jerusalem, forced the Jews to dissolve all their laws. He slaughtered countless thousands of Jewish men, sold many of their wives and children into slavery, and completely tried to obliterate the Jewish religion. He stopped the daily sacrifices in the temple, and then he desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar, one of the most ceremonially unclean of all animals. And not only did he desecrate the temple and the altar with the sacrifice of the pig, he forced the priests to eat the pig's flesh. Eventually, Antiochus had the temple rededicated as a shrine to Zeus, and he replaced all of the usual sacrifices with sacrifices of swine, and he forced the Jews to eat the meat of those sacrifices offered to a pagan god. And as a result, many of the Jews fled to the mountains and hid in caves, while others died as martyrs for their faith. And in response to Antiochus's oppression, a Jewish zealot by the name of Judas Maccabeus put together a small army who would hide out in the mountains and make stealth raids into Jerusalem, eventually defeating Antiochus, reclaiming the city, and taking back over the temple. And he cleansed the temple and rededicated it and restored the Jewish faith and practices. And this is the account of the abomination of desolation that Daniel referred to in his prophecy. A time when all of the Jewish sacrifices were stopped, a pagan image took God's place in the temple, and everything that was sacred to the Jewish religion was desecrated. And that's what it meant in Daniel's day. So what did it mean in Jesus' day, in the day of his disciples? Well, as we study these words from Jesus in the context of Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 3, it is clear that Antiochus did not exhaust the meaning of Jesus' words regarding the abomination of desolation. For as I've already noted repeatedly, history records that in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the temple and the city. Now, you'll recall in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 38, if you've been following along in this series, that before Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple, he promised that the temple would be left desolate, and he pronounced judgment on the temple in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 38. And the word that he used, desolate, in that verse has the same root word as desolation here in verse 15. Additionally, in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 9, Jesus used the barren or the desolate fig tree to symbolize the judgment that was soon to come upon the nation of Israel. 
Furthermore, in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 2, Jesus prophesied that every stone from the temple would be thrown down. And in verse 3, the disciples asked when this would take place. When would the temple be destroyed? And here in verse 15, Jesus is telling them, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. That is the time when these things will take place. And history tells us that the Roman ruler went into the temple and he offered pagan sacrifices on the altar, an act of complete abomination that destroyed and left the temple and the city desolate. Now Luke, in his gospel account of this passage, brings clarity to Jesus' words in verse 15. And when you study the gospel of Luke and the parallel account, you'll find that Jesus referred to this abomination of desolation and the destruction that would come twice. He referred to it first in Luke chapter 19, verses 42 to 44, before he cleansed the temple. And he said that there was coming a day when the temple would be desolate. And then the second time he referred to it was in Luke chapter 21 and verse 20 when he answered the disciples' questions. And this is what he said in Luke 21 verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. So Jesus says to them, when you see the armies approaching, you know it is time for the temple to be destroyed. That's what it meant in the disciples' day. But what does it mean for the future? Well, ultimately, both Daniel's and Jesus' words will be fulfilled at the end of the age, just before Jesus Christ returns in power and glory. The Apostle Paul describes what that will be like, and he tells us that in the last three and a half years of the tribulation described in the book of Revelation, the Antichrist will break his agreement of peace with Israel. He will move into the temple, and he will proclaim that he and he alone is God. And the Bible says that he will receive the worship of the nations of the earth, and that he will set himself in opposition to the worship of the one true and living God. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul describes this abomination of desolation. And he says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And the Apostle John tells us that from the temple, the Antichrist will command and demand universal worship be given to him. And his associate, the false prophet, will cause the whole world to worship the Antichrist. And John described it in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. And he said, All who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb 
who was slain. And from verse 15, friends, we can see that Satan has always wanted the worship of the world. And at the turning point of the tribulation, he will begin to receive it. Then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be again. It will be a time of great desecration, unlike anything that the world has ever seen. If you think it's desecrating now, you haven't seen anything yet. And notice how Matthew ends verse 15 with a warning to ponder and consider these words. Let the reader understand what Jesus is saying. Well, the abomination of desolation is not only a time of great desecration, it is also a time of great departure in verses 16 to 20. And Jesus goes on and he says, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. Jesus' words in verses 16 to 20 serve both as a warning and as an exhortation. They serve as as a warning in that the appearance of the abomination of desolation is the sign that the birth pains that Jesus has just been describing are increasing. They're becoming more frequent and they're becoming more intense. And in addition to this warning, Jesus' words contain a twofold exhortation. Did you see it in these verses? He tells his disciples they are to flee and they are to pray. First, in verse 15, Jesus says that when the abomination of desolation appears, those who are in Judea should flee to the mountains. The word flee is where we get our English word fugitive. It means a person who takes flight in order to, take, to escape from danger. And according to Jesus, those who are alive at the time of this abomination of desolation, their only hope for survival will be to flee and run for safety and take refuge in the mountains. Now the importance of this exhortation to flee is further highlighted in verses 17 and 18, where Jesus says, Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And in Jesus' day, often the homes had a flat roof where in the evening, the residents would go up the steps and climb onto the roof and relax and rest and cool down from the hard work and the heat of the day. And Jesus says when the abomination of desolation takes place, if you find yourself on the roof of your house, don't go downstairs and gather any of your belongings. Flee. Flee to the mountains. And if you happen to be out in the field working, don't go and retrieve your cloak and your outer garment and cover up your work clothes. Flee in your work clothes. Leave everything behind and escape. One commentator described Jesus' instructions here in verses 17 and 18 this way. 
he says it is a vivid picture of an urgent crisis. A crisis that has never been seen before. And the urgency of this crisis is further seen in verse 19. Do you see it? Jesus says, and alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. And why would Jesus say that in verse 19? Because women who find themselves in families who find themselves in such conditions will find it difficult to flee quickly and they'll be at greater risk for capture and death. Then in verse 20, Jesus gives his second exhortation, admonishing his disciples to pray, saying, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. And what I want you to see, friends, is that this encouragement to pray is really a prodding from Jesus for them to trust in God in the midst of their trial. For if the escape were to take place in winter, the roads would be muddy and the conditions would impede their flight. Or if the flight were to take place on a Sabbath, there would be no goods available for purchase. Many of the gates of the city would be closed. And the legalistic Jews might try to stop them and punish them for breaking the Sabbath laws. Here's Jesus' point in verses 16 to 20. That on the day of the abomination of desolation, no possession will be worth the risk of retrieving. And no hindrance will be too insignificant. That because of the imminent unmatched terror Single-minded, undeterred flight and prayerful trust in God are the only responses in those moments. Well, the abomination of desolation is not only a time of great desecration and a time of great departure. Jesus says in verses 21 to 22 that it will be a time of great distress. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the, the elect, those days will be cut short. Notice how he begins verse 21 with the phrase, for then. It refers back to verses 15 to 20 in the occurrence of the abomination of desolation. And Jesus' message in verses 21 to 22 is that these things are going to get worse before they get better. Do you hear that, friends? Because I'm not sure we really believe that. There's an idea that is being promoted that things are going to get better and somehow there's going to be some sort of utopia in this world before Jesus returns. And I ask you simply to open the book of Revelation and begin reading in chapter 6 and read all the way to the end to chapter 19 and 20 when Jesus Christ returns as his second coming. And you ask me, after you've read that, if things are really going to get better. A simple reading of the book of Revelation tells you along with Jesus' words in this chapter, that things are going to get worse before they get better, that's why Jesus must return. He is the only one who can fix the problems of this world. No one else can do it. 
only Christ. And as we've already noted, historians have chronicled the devastation surrounding the destruction of the temple as a time of tribulation that that world has never seen up to that time. But you'll notice in verses 21 and 22 that Jesus has to be talking not only about the temple, but beyond the temple into the future. And his words actually remind us of Daniel chapter 12 in verse 1, which point to a future fulfillment of Jesus' words in verse 21. And this is what Daniel says in Daniel chapter 12 in verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. The book of life. A future time. And notice how Jesus describes it in verse 21. It is a time of great tribulation, meaning the severest time of trouble ever known to man. And what he's referring to here is the last three and a half years before he returns to rule and reign on his throne in Jerusalem. And the Bible teaches us that this period of time will be one catastrophic event after another. And it will all lead up to the final war, the battle of Armageddon, which will result in anguish and suffering such as the world has never known. And notice in verse 22 that in the midst of this overwhelming calamity, Jesus offers a word of hope. And he says, And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now I'll confess to you this morning that his words in verse 22 are difficult to interpret properly. And this is my best attempt at, after reading probably 20 different authors on this verse and writing out thoughts, and deleting thoughts, and rewriting thoughts, and deleting thoughts, and reading again, and walking around the office, and praying, and driving myself mad. This is what I've got. The phrase, cut short. It can carry the idea of stopping instantly. And I think that is the meaning in this context. We know that the great tribulation described in the book of Revelation and other places is a time-fixed period of seven years. The first three and a half tribulation, the last three and a half great tribulation. And it's repeated, it is repeated throughout Scripture. So we understand that Jesus can't be saying that he's going to cut those seven years short. If that's what he meant, he would be contradicting Scripture. So what I think it means is that he is going to stop the catastrophe at seven years. He'll cut it short. He won't allow it to go on any longer. And so then I would translate the phrase this way. If God didn't instantly stop those days after three and a half years, no one would survive. 
the catastrophe, the calamity, the evil, the wickedness would become so great that no one would be able to survive it and live through it. And so he will instantly stop it at the end of seven years. And he says, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. He will do this. And you'll notice that this is the first time the word elect is used in the New Testament. And I think it has a dual meaning here. It's referring to the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And it's referring to those who will come to Christ during the tribulation and belong to him. And what Jesus is saying as a word of hope, as this world comes to the very brink of disintegration, he will do what he's always done for all of his people. He will keep them and preserve them and save them to the end. Because he is the God who saves. And he is the God who keeps his people saved. And as I've told you over and over and over again, you don't keep yourself saved. You don't have the ability. The same God who gave you life is the same God who keeps you in the life. And he is the same God who will complete you in his life in glory. And what is true for you is true for those who will be alive at the time of this abomination of desolation. Well, the abomination of desolation is not only a time of great desecration, a time of great departure, and a time of great distress. Finally, it is a time of great deception in verses 23 to 28. Jesus says, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather now notice how he begins these final verses in this section of his discourse. He begins with the word then. During those days spoken of in verses 21 and 22, the days of tribulation, during those days then all of these things that Jesus describes will take place. And Jesus says in verses 23 to 26, that those who have listened to his counsel to flee to the mountains for safety will be especially vulnerable during that time. He says that false Christs and false prophets will arise. They'll perform great signs and wonders. And they'll do all of this to entice those people who have fled and who are hiding to come out of hiding and to come back so they can be captured and killed and fall, fall into the hands of the enemy. And while there have always been false Christs and false prophets and false teachers, as the day of Christ's return draws near, Jesus says in these verses, it will be an unparalleled time of deception unlike anything that has ever been seen before. As the Antichrist and the false prophet will wield their demonic power. And Jesus says they'll even seek to deceive his elect if that were possible. Now, Jesus' warning in verses 25 and 26 not only applied to the generation of his day, but also to a future generation at the time of the abomination of desolation. 
For according to one strand of Jewish thought, many Jews believed that the Messiah would appear in the wilderness at his return. And he would perform great signs and miracles, keeping in line with Moses and his work that he had done during the Exodus. And the reference to inner rooms would suggest that he comes hidden and kept in secret until he makes his appearance known. And this was the thought of many in Jesus' day. Now notice what Jesus does in these verses. It's important. He gives a threefold command. Do you see it? He says, I've told you what's going to take place beforehand. Do not go out and do not believe it. Threefold command. I don't want you to be surprised about all of these events. I've told you what's going to happen before it ever happens. Don't be surprised. And when it happens, don't go out. And when it happens, don't believe it. In other words... Don't be deceived. Use discernment. He's teaching them that when he returns, there's not going to be word from someone else down the street. Hey, Christ has appeared and he's in the wilderness. Let's all run out and see him. Hey, Christ is in this secret room down the road. Let's everybody go see him. Don't be deceived. Keep your focus on me. And not on what's false. Don't be deceived. Use discernment. And notice what he says in verse 27. His return will be an event that will be impossible to miss. No one will be able to miss it. Do you see it? Do you see how he describes it? In verse 27 he says, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Lightning in the east and it flashes all the way across to the west. That's what it's going to be like when I return. It will be impossible to miss. Just like it's impossible to miss the lightning in that horrible storm, it will be impossible to miss my return. It will not be stretched over a long period of time. It will be quick. It will be sudden. It will be public. It will be visible. It will be universal. And it will be glorious that's what Jesus's return will be like and do you know that the Bible describes it the first description is in Acts chapter 1 verses 9 through 11 Jesus was giving his final instructions to his disciples and right there before their very eyes he ascended back into heaven and the angel had to come and speak to the disciples and they spoke these words, Acts 1, verses 9 through 11. And when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Can you picture it? Just imagine if you were a disciple on that day. You were standing there on the hillside, and you're looking at Jesus face to face in his resurrection body, and he's talking to you, and he's giving you final instructions. And you were looking at him face to face, and now you're looking at his chest. And now you're looking at his knees. And now you're looking at his feet. And now you're looking up in the air. That's what the Bible says happened in that very moment. Verse 10, and while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Listen, 
This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Do you hear that? He will come in the same way. He will not come in a secret room. He will not come in the wilderness. He will be impossible to miss. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is preparing us for this return. And do you think that God, in his infinite wisdom, if he's been preparing us from Genesis to Revelation for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would do it in a secret way? Are you kidding me? Still not convinced? This is how John described it in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. Behold. You know why he began with that? Because he knew you might be falling asleep. And he said, wake up. And pay attention to what I'm about to say. He is coming. He is coming. It's certainty. And he's coming with the clouds. And listen to what John said. And every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Friends, there is no hidden secrecy to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an event that is marked on the timetable of God from the foundation of the world. It's in His control, and it will happen as sure as I'm standing on this platform and as sure as you're sitting in that seat. It's going to happen. And when Christ returns, for those who belong to Him, His coming will be a marvelous, a glorious deliverance. But for those who don't know Him, for those who have resisted Him, for those who have opposed Him, it will be the ultimate day of reckoning. It will be a day not of glory. It will be a day of fear and trembling and wailing. And if you're not convinced about verse 27, look at how Jesus ends this section in verse 28. He says, For wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. His words in verse 28 were a common proverb in Israel. One commentator described his words in this proverb this way. As the presence of the vultures infallibly indicates where the corpse is, so there will be no need to search for the coming of the Son of Man. It will be obvious. And Jesus' words here are a clear picture of judgment. A picture of predatory birds perched on dead corpuses ready to feast on their flesh. And did you know that at the end of the book of Revelation that John caught a vision of the very words of verse 28 concerning the battle of Armageddon. And in Revelation 19 verses 17 to 21 this is what John wrote. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. 
And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Listen. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Where the vultures gather, there the corpses. And the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ will be unmistakable. Just as the lightning flashes, all will see it. Just as the birds gather, all will see it. By that day, at the end of the great tribulation, friends, the world will be completely full of its sin, evil, and hatred of God. It will be a spiritually decayed wasteland. And God will bring his final judgment and usher in a new heaven and a new earth. And in that day, all false worship will be abolished. All false Christs and false prophets will be destroyed. And the Lord Jesus Christ will rule and reign forevermore. Now, this is a hard passage to sit through. It's an even harder passage to apply. But I have four applications, and I'll close with these. Number one, in light of these truths, friends, could I just simply ask you this morning, do you believe Jesus' words? Do you believe his words in this text? Do you believe that what he said would happen did happen? Do you believe that what he says will happen in the future will happen? If you don't believe his words in this passage, why would you believe his words about love or divorce or adultery or prayer or fasting or idolatry or salvation or any other subject? You can't pick and choose what you believe. Jesus is the truth and everything that he speaks is truth. Do you believe these words? And you say, well, why are you asking us that question? It's really simple. Because some of you are living like you don't believe that Jesus is going to come back. You're living like you've got all the time in the world. You're living like it doesn't matter how you live, how you think, what you do. You give a nod to Jesus and you, you think you're good and you go on your way and you live life for yourself and you don't live for God. That's why I'm asking you this morning, do you believe these words? Do you truly believe that he's going to come back and every eye is going to see him? Do you believe that you have a date with deity? Because what you truly believe informs how you live. 
And I wonder if some of you just really don't believe what Jesus has said. Application number two. In this final discourse, Jesus makes it clear that God is sovereign over history. Can't you see that? And yet Jesus tells his disciples in this passage to pray to an absolutely sovereign God. And so I ask you this morning, do you pray like this when you pray? Do you bow your head and bend your knee and pray as if you are praying to a sovereign God? Do you cast your dependence upon God through prayer while at the same time trusting in his complete sovereignty over the circumstances of your life? Do you, do you pray like that? Or do you allow anxiety and fear and the future and your circumstances rob you of what you say you truly believe about God and His sovereignty? Do you pray to a sovereign God on a practical daily basis? Oh, you pray to Him when everything is good in your life. I'm praying to my sovereign God. He's sovereign over me. Everything is going great. It's easy to pray to a sovereign God like that. What about when everything's not so great? What about when you're anxious and afraid? Do you still believe in His sovereignty and pray to Him as a sovereign God? Or do you begin to question because things are not as rosy as they once were, whether or not God is really sovereign over your life? Oh, friends, He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change even though your circumstances change. And He is sovereign when things are good, and He is sovereign when things are bad. So when you pray to Him when He is good... You can pray and trust His sovereignty. And when things are bad, you can pray and trust His sovereignty. Do you pray to a sovereign God on a daily basis? Or do you allow what's going on in the world around you to rob you of your belief and conviction that God is truly sovereign? I mean, I'm just telling you this morning, I don't know how you make it through a week if you don't believe that God is sovereign over everything and there are no accidents. Oh, maybe that's why you're struggling so much. Because you don't truly believe that. Oh, you sing the hymn, this is my father's world, do you believe it? Do you believe it's his world? Do you believe He's sovereign over it? And if you believe He's sovereign over it in all the events that Jesus is teaching, then pray. Pray to this glorious, sovereign God because your life is right there in the palm of His hands. And no one or nothing can ever take it away. You are secure. And so you can pray to this sovereign God. Application number three. For the believer, prophetic passages of Scripture should cause him to expectantly prepare for and long for the return of Christ. And so I ask you today, believer, is the affection of your heart growing warmer at the thought of Christ's return? Do you find yourself longing more and more for that day? As J.C. Ryle wrote, our plain duty then is to live always prepared for His return. 
Let us walk by faith and not by sight. Let us believe in Christ and serve Christ and follow Christ and love Christ. So living, whenever Christ may return, we shall be ready to meet him. Do you hear that? Let us walk by faith and not by sight. Let us believe in Christ. Let us serve Christ. Let us follow Christ. Let us love Christ to the very end. And so I ask you this morning, believer, in light of these prophetic truths, are you living like this? Walking by faith, not by sight. Loving Christ, living for Christ, serving Christ, longing for his return. That's the purpose of prophecy for the believer. Final application for the unbelievers who are in our midst this morning. And I know there are some unbelievers in this room today. Prophetic passages of Scripture like this should cause you to realize that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming one day in terrible judgment. And as the Bible says, the fear of this reality should persuade you. It should persuade you to turn from your sin, to turn from living for yourself, and to turn to Christ, and to believe in Christ, and to trust in what Christ accomplished on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection, he did for you. And that if you believe in him and turn from your sins, He'll save you. He'll forgive you. He'll set you free. He'll give you a hope for the future. He'll give you new life in the present. And when you come to know Christ, you stop living for yourself and you start living for him. That's how you know you're a Christian. And so I say to you with the utmost sincerity in my heart this morning, unbeliever, these prophetic passages should cause fear and trembling in your life and point you to Jesus. And I simply ask you this morning, unbeliever, why would you not come to Christ today? Why would you not believe in Christ right now? Could I simply ask you, unbeliever, what are you waiting for? For. In this passage, Jesus speaks of a time of trouble that is coming unlike anything the world has ever known. It will be a time of unprecedented death, destruction, suffering, and terror. But then, then, Jesus will come and usher in his kingdom. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for the truths of your word today. And we pray that you would use them to give us hope. And we pray also, God, that you would use them to challenge us. To examine our lives. And to live more fully and devotedly to you. We pray, God, that through the power of your spirit, you would use your word to bring comfort, to bring encouragement, to bring hope, to bring strength, and most importantly, to bring life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.